Namaste, friends. This is part two of my conversation with Rajiv Malhotra on his latest book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. It's another bombshell, and I recommend that all of you order a copy and prepare yourself for the future awaiting us. Okay, Rajiv, one of the very intriguing terms you use in this book is crash of civilization. We are familiar with the term clash of civilizations, but you have introduced a new term, crash of civilizations, with an R. Could you please describe this in your own inimitable way to the viewers of this channel? You know, uh, I'm glad you picked this up. When I, when I do a book, it goes through several drafts and many working titles. So at one point in time, early on, uh, the title was uh, going to be Crash of Civilization. Publisher after publisher said, nay, 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 it would, uh, people don't want to have this. No, 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 what are all this? Say? So, they, they, so I put it inside the book <laughs> rather than on the cover. But, you know. I really wish you had kept yeah, it. It's, because it's a, term. it's a very powerful term and it would have caught more eyeballs. But you know, the thing is, I'm writing a whole series of these books. This is just the first bombshell. So I'll, I'll elaborate on the different ones, make smaller books and elaborate on different points. Now, we know clash of civilizations with the L refers to, you know, the West versus Islam and the civilization A versus B having a clash. Crash uh, with the R is the civilization crashing. So what do I mean by civilization crashing? Right now, the civilization is held in a delicate equilibrium with many, many forces. So the haves and have-nots have reached an equilibrium. You know, uh, the haves are employer, em em the other guys are employees, or maybe some countries are haves and they, they have a donor-recipient relationship. So there's some kind of balance, you know. Or let's say in a family, uh, family somebody has got power, some dominant person in the family, others are subservient, but they find a balance. Now, what happens is, that balances disrupt and fall apart when there is a new force that gives them unequal benefit. Uh, AI is going to have unequal impact. So even if A and B are held in balance today through some means, or maybe A is above, B is below, but they're held, they're held in a balance. When artificial intelligence comes, somebody gets to be much more powerful than they were, and the other person does not get the same benefit. Some take advantage of weapons more than others. So when cannons came, you know, not everybody or not every army got all these cannons right away. Some armies like Babur brought cannons to India, you know. So similarly, so every weapon is, has had that effect. Every breakthrough in technology has unequal impact. Therefore, equilibriums fall apart. The delicately held equilibriums fall apart. So the crash of civilization refers to a kind of a disequilibrium that society will go through. And this disequilibrium has never happened before because in this disequilibrium, the basic challenge will be that we do not need so much labor. We have machines that can do this work cheaper, better. They don't fall ill. They, 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 there are a lot of human problems that don't exist with machines. So you will have an argument that maybe the world needs to be depopulated. And I'm convinced that this argument will happen. Not that we need to kill people and holocaust them, but you know somehow maybe we need to have policies against birth against too much too many babies. Uh, we need to. Eat. But the point is this: it, let's say right now the world is eight billion. It's going to be 10, 12 billion later in the century. 
But with AI, you could run the whole world with only 1 billion people. You do not need uh, that many people. India uh, from 1.3 billion is going to go to 1.5 or 6 later on. But 200 million, 300 million people, properly educated, good infrastructure, can run this country perfectly well. India used to have no more than 300 million people during the British era. Uh, we've become four times the population. The bottom half is not very productive. The bottom half has have to be looked after. But in India, even the top half is not India productive. India's top half is... <laughs> I'm sorry. They are a liability and they are causing the so-called bottom half to sink deeper than ever yes. before. So I don't think in India the problem is of the bottom half. The bottom half will somehow still scrape through because they are at least hardworking, some of them. But the, bottom, the top half are parasitic. That is correct. But the AI brings a very interesting problem. If we don't have enough AI, we have a problem. If we have too much AI, we have a problem. So let me explain. If we don't have enough AI, China will eat our lunch. China, Pakistan will finish us off. We will not be competitive in weaponry. We will not be competitive in, so in uh, intellectual warfare, psychological warfare, all the things we talked about in the previous episode, the breaking India 2 forces, 2.0 forces will get the better of us. So on the one hand, we need a lot of AI. We need AI to be on par with the rest of the world. If they have cannons, we need to have cannons. That's, that's the case for having a lot of AI. And we need to catch up. And I agree with that. But then if we have a lot of AI, we also create obsolescence of jobs. A lot of things that required, you know, human beings to do. So now, you know, in the United States also, uh, Amazon has taken over small shops. And, uh, and now the people who used to work in a retail shop are now working in an Amazon warehouse, you know, just packing things. Or they're running Amazon trucks, delivery trucks. But then people in AI, I have some people who work for Amazon in AI and robotics. And they tell me that there is a huge investment to automate the warehouse so that you don't need people there. So first, the people who are do, doing the retailing are out of work and a subset of them get jobs in warehouse. Now the jobs in warehouse will be given to robots. Similarly, Amazon is experimenting already with the delivery where the delivery will be through drones and through various means that you won't need human drivers. There'll be driverless cars, driverless trucks. So you see what is happening is this advent of AI is creating an economy of have, not only haves and have-nots, but you, less need for labor. The people who respond to this say that, well, you know, we'll create service jobs. There'll be more people doing massage and there'll be more people who will be emotional companions and all of that. So that is fine, but that's more like turning human beings into pets. You know, that you, you now, you, you have these people, you need to feed them. So let's have them do some, uh, you know, let's have these soft skills and then we can, feed, we can justify giving them some work. This may last for a while, but in the long run, the effect of tremendous amount of scale of efficiency is going to disempower human labor. You won't even need so much human labor. But see, we expected the same from computers. Yes. And that's why unions everywhere, especially in India, in the bank sector, for example, went on strike after strike opposing computerization. Right. The fact is that computers have not taken away jobs. They created many more new jobs. We all thought that with the coming of Amazon and Flipkart and all these malls, the neighborhood Kirana store would just vanish out of existence. That hasn't happened. In fact, they're doing better business than ever before. 
the local markets are still flooded with customers. It's not as if they've gone deserted, at least not in India. Go to Chandni Chok, go to Karolbar. Even today, during pandemic, the moment they freed the restrictions somewhat, um, there were stampedes in the markets. It's not as if people were happy just purchasing everything online. Yeah. So some of these trends are delayed coming to India. But let me just give you a concrete, since you've raised an issue, let me give you a concrete example of the impact of automation. So let's take the automobile industry, which employs around 4 million, 5 million people in India. India is not only making cars, but making auto parts, which are exported. India is one of the largest exporters of automobile parts. All the big auto manufacturers, GM, Chrysler, you know, all the European ones, the Japanese ones, they buy parts from India. So it employs a large number of people. Now the automobile is going to be replaced with electric cars. Electric cars are not internal combustion engine. You don't need an engine. You have a battery. So nobody, the spark plug you don't need. The carburetor you don't need. Some little knob, some little screw here. A, a, a car engine has got hundreds of parts, little parts, and a lot of small scale, medium scale people are manufacturing these parts. So as, as the world shifts to electric vehicles, India also shifting to electric, electric vehicles. Of course, people like Mahindra will make money because they'll be in the electric vehicle business. But all these small ancillary, ancillary wallas will be out of work. So I even talked to the automobile industry type people to see if they want to come on the show and address it. They are afraid to deal with this issue. They're hiding from this issue. But what will happen to the few million workers who are involved in the automobile sector when the industry shifts to electric cars? So let me now explain what, what the electric car is. The engine of the electric car is a battery. This battery is the lithium, lithium ion battery. And China has 50% of the world's supply of lithium. And China made this bet long ago, like one of many bets, that the future is going to be this. So they started investing in R&D. They own most of the patents, most of the technology for making this uh, battery, because the batteries has to become more and more efficient, less and less weight, have more have uh, charge for lasting more and more miles. That is the race to make the, uh, the battery uh, better and better. So India will be dismantling an industry which is 100% indigenized. We do not, nobody needs to import to learn how to build a carburetor or a spark plug or any of that. Indians know how to do that because this technology is very old. So yes, of course, it's polluting. And there's an argument for replacing this car with uh, you know, electric car. That's a good argument. But I'm just trying to tell you what's the side effect, which hasn't been considered. The side effect is we are dismantling an old technology, an old industry, which is 100% indigenous and employs a lot of people. And we're replacing it with a new technology, which is going to be made in China. So you're going to dismantle the jobs in India and create jobs in China. So China will make money two ways. One is it'll give you the raw material. Uh, to uh, the lithium because they have 50% of the world market. Second is that you have to buy it under license from them. So I know a lot of people are saying we are manufacturing lithium batteries in India, but we are manufacturing with Chinese technology. And so in five years or in two years, this technology will be obsolete. So you may say, yeah, I, I, under the terms, I owe them royalty for a little while, then it's mine. But the point is that this technology is galloping ahead. The rate at which the lithium technology is advancing 
it has a lot to do with the use of AI in, in its uh, uh, advancement. So the faster it can advance, the more rapidly, the better it gets at replacing the internal combustion engine. So the, the example I'm giving you is that as, uh, as technologies are replaced by newer technologies, it is not necessarily the case that those new technologies are indigenous in India. The new technologies may be from foreign so even the computerization, you know, it took several years for India to indigenize the computers because the computerization, it happened. But in the beginning, they're all foreign computers, foreign computers. Even now, the heart of the computer, which is the silicon, which is the semiconductor, the, the, the processor is imported. India does not have a, a, any worthwhile semiconductor industry. So while we say these are made in India computers, they are assembled in India. The body is India. The keyboard and all these things are in, made in India. But the actual electronic engine, the semiconductor is largely imported. So we have become dependent on this. Industry makes money by Im improving its efficiency. And, and if you have ca the, the capital intensive. So now let's talk about economics here. Uh, this is a matter of fact that uh, uh, in my book, I've documented the source also. Uh, for every 10% increase in GDP of India, however long it takes, whether over that many years or whenever the, the GDP goes up by a total of 10%, uh, the 10% increase in GDP in India results in only 1% increase in employment. So, yeah. so this means that the GDP is growing with capital and mechanization and industry, and, you know, machinery, not with more labor. So when somebody is making 100 rupees worth of GDP, and now he's going to make 110 rupees worth of GDP, uh, if he had 100 employees, he'll not have 110 employees, he'll have only 101 employees. So what is what what this growth in GDP is doing is it's top heavy. It is foreign FDI. People are championing FDI. FDI doesn't help the small industry or the small you know, street vendor. FDI goes to the Sensex people, the big corporations. They get the FDI and they, they get the GDP growth. And that does not necessarily uh, help. the Except if you invest in agriculture. There, uh, the ratio is much higher. The ratio of employment uh, per GDP growth figures. So let's look at agriculture. Agriculture has agriculture and related village economy, rural economies, or is almost like fifty percent of India Indians are dependent on that. About, uh, but the contribution to GDP is fifteen percent. So it means that uh, the the economic contribution to India is fifteen percent. But on that fifteen percent economic contribution, fifty percent of the people have to get their livelihood. So this is why there is a huge farming crisis, because because the, yeah. the, 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 there's an overabundance of labor. And, you know, when the industrial revolution happened in other countries. They mechanized their farms and turned them into manufacturing. And then from one level of manufacturing to the next level and so on. India has not had its first industrial revolution in that in the sense of moving people from farms because we cannot move them from farms since there are not enough jobs. It's not that these people want to stay in farms. I know a lot of migrant workers. They work. They work in domestic uh, as domestic servants. And my mother, my mother has several, and I talk to them and I know them very well. And their family situation is that back at home, the farming is a, not a productive, economically productive activity. They'll come to the even if they are good landowners. Some of them are good landowners. They'll rather come and work as a driver or a maid or something in the city because they can at least eat and they have. A, they, they can earn a livelihood. So this overpopulation, 
India, one of the big problems of India is there is an overpopulation, there is a surplus population, and as there is more and more automation, you're going to find more and more pressure uh, that uh, to keep these people going. But Rajiv, India has gone through many crash of civilizations, would you not agree? Invasions, the Islamic invasions, then British colonization, or the, you know, all, all these phases for last thousand years. Wouldn't you say this will be yet one more? No, but it has also been shrinking. Uh, you, you look... Uh, That's no, right. Okay. It crashed. It it's shrinking. Shrank. It's shrinking. Um, it's, lost, it's lost territory. It's lost uh, at least uh, at least the Bharatiya share of Bharatiya civilization has shrunk. Maybe at one time, one time you would have Central Asia and Tibet and all the way down to uh, Sri Lanka and from uh, from Afghanistan all the way to Bali. So you know, if you are happy with a shrinking shrinking outlook, no, I'm not happy. I'm saying we've already had so many crashes and shrinking and disorientation. Yes. Um, yeah. Just loss of direction, loss of selfhood. Yes. Now, what you are predicting is another big one ahead of us. Is another big one. Is yes, another big one, because we are as less little prepared for it as we were for the earlier invasions. We just don't seem to yes. learn. So the combination of external Pakistan, China. With all this technology, China want to grab land and grab the reverse, grab the reverse. Uh, and Pakistan want to do all the things that they've always wanted to do uh, against India. This alliance is a very solid alliance. This uh, the, China has thought out long and hard to mortgage. Pakistan has mortgaged its future financially. They have no choice, but they're now in debt to China. And Chinese Chinese don't understand South Indian culturally, South Asian culturally. The India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka type people, they don't really understand them culturally. And they, they're not very comfortable bossing over them direct man-to-man -man contact. So they'll outsource that part to the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis have sold uh, the, the, the idea to the Chinese that they know how to look after Indians, how to look, uh, how to manage them, how to be their boss. They've, after all, the Mughals did it. So they can return to that era and they can be like the return of the Mughals in a sense. And they're looking for China to give them the hard power. China to give them the hard power and Pakistan can do the dirty work, boots on the ground. This is a very serious uh, issue India faces and this AI exacerbates it. And the breaking India forces on the internal side, breaking India forces are the internal vulnerability. Pakistan, China are the external threat. The two in combination, I don't think India can survive. So are you saying we'll be wiped out? So I do a stress test. I, I, yeah, that's I, right. That's another phrase you use, you're stress testing so, India. So the, when you go to a doctor... It's like a litmus test. So when you go to a doctor, stress test is to find out what your tolerance limits are, how much you can, how much work you can do before the heart cannot do any further. And these parameters, this data helps the doctor figure out where to improve you, what diet you need, how much exercise is safe, not safe. So the stress test gives you a parameters of the system. And we need to do, we need to stress test India uh, like a system uh, and say what happens if AI hits in the, at this time, in this way, these applications, these technologies, scenario where China does this, scenario where China does that, scenario under breaking India forces. So I'm working out these scenarios uh, as to what are the plausible and likely things that AI could trigger and what would happen to India. So I've broken my stress test into three levels. There is the Sthul Sharir and the Sukshma Sharir and the Karan Sharir. 
So the impact of AI on each of these, you, you, uh, the relationship of AI on each of these, you can look at. The stoolish area is the physical body. So if the physical body, you have, what's the impact on economy? What's the impact on jobs? What's the impact on inequalities, haves and have-nots? Maybe certain regions like Bangalore will do very well. New industries will be created and they'll thrive. But maybe the old industries and the labor force in Bihar and UP or, or wherever, some other places will not do so well. Maybe some industrial economy will do very well and the the people dependent on farms will be worse off. So that needs to be sorted out. That's at the level of Stulishari. And even the military is an issue at the Stulishari level, the whole military issue. The Sukhshmishari is the mental thing we were talking about. The loss of agency, becoming colonized mentally, becoming more dependent on, uh, on uh, AI and digital media, and, and somebody else controls that. Somebody else decides, am I a winner or a loser? Uh, who, who is more popular? You know, all of this is in the hands of somebody else. And we are loving these, these devatas, these foreign devatas. So that is, a, that is a stress test showing that at the sukshma Shari level, we're highly vulnerable. We're not very autonomous. We do not have our own sovereignty. We did not develop these platforms ourselves. And when even six months ago, when Geo sold out so much to these foreign guys, there were no safeguards placed. They didn't even want to... Take my article, which is a section of this book. I have a section in this book called India is for Sale. India, the article like that in this book is called India is for Sale. Yeah, I, I have another that. one called, you know, the, the return of the East India Company. At the very least, they could have allowed my discussion, my points. So maybe they could have included something in their negotiation, but they're not interested. Uh, so the Sukshma Sharir of India is vulnerable right from the top to the bottom because I, I don't see leadership. I don't see the leadership understanding these things. So they represent their mind represents the sukshmishari uh, of India. The the average person is becoming more more moronized. So I that's the sukshmishari. As far as the current shari is concerned, it has to do with what's our character like. Karmically, are we really fit? Are we kind of opportunistic? Are we too much into corruption? Are we too much into me, mine? And I see a, I see a problem there also. So my stress test on India shows that India is quite vulnerable during this decade. And I'm not talking about 50 years from now. I'm not saying, oh, in the next century, something could happen. I'm saying before 2030, cracks in India's sovereignty will become undeniable. They already are. But let's get on to the next question, which is, uh, I think you already touched upon it. One of the recent policies that seriously harmed uh, India. And I think you were referring to the geo sale, right? That's one example. That's a good example. Another one yeah. is that several years ago, uh, I exposed the fact that uh, Harvard University and several other universities are surveilling on the Kumbh Mela. And I wrote a book. I wrote a lot of articles. I went on YouTube. Uh, I, uh, you know, Kumbh Mela, they, they, they had something called mapping the Kumbh Mela, which is actually surveillance and gathering big data. They're plotting, uh, uh, you know, where do these 100 million people come from, which villages, what jati, what caste, what's the power structure, what's the religion, you know. So they're, they're mapping all this data when they interview these people, along with facial recognition and figuring out at the village level, at the district level, what's the social political demographics going on who's who's at war with whom and then they want to come up with human rights cases based on this that you know maybe there's an exploitation going on or maybe in this uh, kumbh mela male have more no also conversion mafias are setting up based there even in the kumbh mela 
I was the first person who wrote this many, many years ago. This is before Modi's time. And I, I then somebody translated my article into Hindi. They'd made a, a booklet, uh, you know, and then they made lakhs of copies and distributed them at the Kumbh Mela. In fact, a lot of people told me this is very eye-opening. A lot of gurus noticed it. A lot of our leaders noticed it. So I thought that I'm winning an argument that says that instead of foreign people coming and mapping the Kumbh Mela, we should have our own people mapping the Kumbh Mela. We have enough, enough knowledge to do that. Then when uh, Yogi Adityanath became CM, somebody told me, you know, you should go and present it to him because he'll, he's an action guy, he'll do it. I went to Lucknow. I stayed there two nights in his VIP guest house. I was looked after very nicely. He sat with me. I gave him my report. I gave him my PowerPoint presentation. He was sitting there with, there were eight or 10 uh, Babu types. They must have been IS people or whatever. They, they looked like official government officials. And so he was listening very carefully. And uh, he said, he asked his people to uh, follow up with me, understand this, take some action. And he reassured me, like that. So I came back, I got no follow-up, typical style, no follow-up. And I worked very hard to firstly do the research and publish it and then go, uh, go to them and present it to them. Then I saw a couple, uh, two, three years later an article and I can put it, I can show you article where press release that uh, Yogi Adityanath announces that he has invited these seven or eight uh, Western uh, researchers to come and study the Kumvela. So he did exactly the opposite. Now, what happened, I talked to some people in Harvard and various places Then, uh, you know, off the record told me basically they just schmoozed these people. They basically wined and dined and brought some of these guys from uh, state level ministries over to the US and, and made them look like they're very big shots. Some ministers also came, uh, you know, and now we are into the BJP era and we are into the Yogi Adityanath era. This is, I was so disgusted that a complete disregard for my research, not a chance to debate and argue and complete slap on the face that I'm arguing against the harbors of the world and they have now put me aside and invited them in a big way. And I was, I, I find that this is a kind of corruption. Maybe there's no money involved. Maybe nobody got bribed, but even a foreign trips and making them feel good and look good and all that is a kind of emotional bribing. So what details happened, I don't want to get into what happened behind the scenes is not verified. Some people only told me. I put out a tweet saying that I was very disappointed that uh, the Kumbh Mela as a very unique source of diverse data about diversity of population, a diversity of population in every sense of the word. There's no other place where you can get a hundred million uh, kind of a crucible with a hundred million such people uh, in one place and study them. And this is being this huge big data, which is invaluable for machine learning and all that because machines, AI becomes smarter and smarter when you throw more diverse big data at it. And this is a very precious thing. So I put this tweet out and would you believe why it's very interesting. Those who know AI, those who know machine learning, sympathize with me and said, this is very important. Let's put, and they started tweeting that uh, Yogi Adityanath should reconsider and all that. But the other half of the people accusing me saying, oh, he's such a great guy. Why are you accusing him? There must be some reason for it. They have no clue. Some of them saying, if they study us, it's good for us. I said, you are the target of surveillance and you are feeling important as a result of it. So some, I would tell you, 
I must tell you that at least half the people commenting are morons, completely clueless about what I'm saying. And then when I said, here is a book you should read, here's a chapter within a book, here are some excerpts from the book you can read, here are some videos I've done, the people are so lazy, they have no, no interest in actually getting the facts and actually understanding it. So this is part of the reason that I felt very frustrated. What do what you have to say about the young people who are doing cutting-edge research in AI, whether in American universities or some, even in IITs in India, how do you rate them? Are they anywhere? So there's two kinds. No, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, Indians are among the cutting edge of AI brains in the world. That is uh, a certain percentage of uh, AI people in the world are brilliant people. Uh, but they are working either in the United States or Europe for, and they are doing make in America, not make in India. So the, the intellectual property they produce is not Indian. It is belonging to somebody else. The ones in, who are remaining in India and doing cutting edge work are working for Microsoft India, Google India, Facebook India. They're working for, while in India, they're working for the Westerners. So only a very tiny... So intellectual coolies. They are AI coolies. They are AI coolies. AI so the large majority are not doing this kind of cutting edge work, large majority of India who are learning data sciences and machine learning are going to do coolie work. So that kind of work will be the temporary work, just like outsourcing and call center. AI needs next five, five to 10 years, it needs a lot of coolie work. And then that will be dismantled and folded, just like call centers, many of them have. So during this transition phase, to train machines, you need humans. So for instance, uh, on a conveyor belt in Amazon, so some packets are going uh, and uh, the picture cameras are going. Now you have to train the camera, which, which, which is upright. When is the packet upright? When is the box fallen? So human being is going to tag that this picture is correct. The package was correct. Here it has fallen. Uh, or, uh, so in other words, the human is called, it's called tagging, labeling. The, this is labor intensive. A human brain is to label images so that the machine can say, oh, this is the image of a of a one kind of a item. This is an image of another kind of item. That sort of thing. It's sort of like it's sort of like if we wanted to take all the academic people in India and have uh, image recognition of all of them, then somebody would have to manually, human beings would be needed to say, okay, this is Madhukishwar, this one is Madhukishwar, this one is so-and-so, this one is so-and-so. For You have to tag them. And then the machines can take over and you don't need human beings anymore because machines can do, do all this recognition. So we are at a stage, AI in the Western countries needs human beings to do labeling and tagging. And that kind of work is being exported to India. And we, we think we have trained a lot of AI people, but they are doing rudimentary, low-level coolie work. This is not going to produce technology. Is Make in India at all addressing AI? So a few venture capital people are in it. I congratulate them. Very little, very late. The, too little, too late. The total size of the Indian venture capital uh, is a tiny portion of US, China, and Europe, and so on. So it's not like we're going to produce a huge amount, but we will produce something. It's better than before. Even the venture capital in India, a large amount of the venture capital money and ownership comes from foreign venture capitalists. So what is happening is even when an Indian does a startup, his dream is that when somebody will buy him out and he is worth a few hundred million dollars, he'll sell out to this American venture capital company or Google will buy him out. So the exit, so what is happening is we are making some people very rich as individuals. 
the intellectual property does not belong to the country uh, the intellectual property belongs to somebody elsewhere and so make in india is manufacturing but not r and d there's a difference you, you the viewers should understand the difference between r and d and manufacturing so manufacturing you can do but you are getting imported know how and you are always dependent on them and when and when the world standard goes to the next generation you have to go back beg beg your way and 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 get some more know how so we are not investing in r and d the corporate people are not investing in r and d the drdo is investing in r and d but not enough the academic people are more into politics uh, in the united states when you are doing any when you are a graduate student or you you are you're working for professors who got research grants and they are doing making you do research here it is just teaching and not a research uh, and and the you know, and teach besides teaching its politics so we are not a we are not a research oriented society when we say we are knowledge oriented this knowledge of past 5000 years ago usne ye kiya tha wahan par ye vimaan tha ye wo tha is not what it takes you got to keep up with the wahan pe bhi research kahan ki hai us past ki bhi to research nahi dhang se kar rahe wo bhi to neglected hai so you know i'll tell you i was i was very disappointed i i mentioned this quote in my book here uday kotak one of the you know you would think he's very uh, you know great for india and he's a probably a nice guy i've never met him but one of the things he says is that his aspiration is that just like the urbanites in india young people in the urbanite urban areas are getting jobs with microsoft and you know google and all that he would like that uh, villagers should also get these jobs now i said you are making villagers also coolies you are turning villagers into the tech coolies menial jobs why are you saying that tatas and uh, infosys and reliance and Ten others like that should invest their billions of dollars and create Indian technology. Take on the Google of the world. Take on the Microsoft of the world. The strange thing is, Madhu, when you go to these tech companies, you will find a very large part of the R and D brains are Indians. You'll find you go to the New York yeah. banks, who are where they're doing AI banking and AI. You go to medical places in New Jersey. There's a lot of uh, drug discovery, pharmaceuticals from Johnson and Johnson to you know all these. Uh, Uh, you know big huge worldwide pharma companies are new jersey based most of them you you find a large amount of indians there so any industry you go to the ai based research ai based discovery you'll find indians there but that is not technology for india so let's be clear on uh, let's not mix up between indians doing the work and we feel very proud of it versus india as a as an organization as a institution owning the intellectual property they're two different things Rajiv, you know, many of us were harboring this illusion that Pakistan is going to break up, implode, and therefore it's going to be very sooner than later. A lot of people think this dream of a Khanda Bharat will come true because Balochistan is exploding, Sindh is exploding, and Pakistan is in dire trouble. But what picture you're painting? is this formidable combination of china and pakistan who together are now into cutting edge ai and they obviously managing the politics of india it seems not only singubad border but also micromanaging the political narrative in india possibly through very intelligent use of ai so pakistan may also break up but that doesn't help us i mean we break them up and they break us us the point is is bad for us 
the whole of uh, South Asia becomes again available as a fighting places where foreign people will come and grab. Maybe US will grab some territory. China will grab some. Who knows? But I, I see that happening. Uh, the, the fact that Pakistan may be a failed state uh, may be true. But is India going to be, how resilient is India is my concern. And that is a stress test, how India, resilient. If you have 1.3 billion becoming 1.5 billion, a large, large percent of them, for whatever reason, whether it's the fault of the bottom of the pyramid, top of the pyramid combination, whatever the reasons are, the fact is at the end of the day, they are not viable, they're not able to make two ends, their ends meet. And here comes new technology. We can't afford to do without it because we'd be uncompetitive. If we put too much of it, then a lot of these people will lose their jobs. So so when, they, when people lose jobs, uh, whether it is the migrant workers or whoever, it's a, it's a field day for breaking India forces. So breaking India forces are thriving on this, that, you know, all these things will happen. A lot of people will be out of work. So we got to convert this guy, convert that guy, make that guy Maoist, whatever they're going to do. So there, the breaking India forces will, will benefit many ways. One is the fallout of uh, unemployment is good for them because it creates more chaos. Second is that these tools of psychological management is very good for them because they can use these tools to create problems, surveillance, they can blackmail leaders. You know, I have been saying for a very long time that, that they should ban government officials from using Gmail because it's all, all, all of it is available for reading. So, Probably they have dossiers on how to blackmail this fellow, that fellow, that fellow, because they know what he's up to in his private life. India doesn't have that kind of a data protection. I have received from some of the highest levels of security, some private email, you know, for something, some information or whatever that they thought I might give it, whether I give or not is another matter, but it's on Gmail. And so I wonder what kind of, uh, these are, generals or defense people or security people or people in some government uh, you know establishment somewhere uh, and they're sending you messages here and there in social media uh, there is a there is a huge crisis of uh, ai related uh, uh, disruption of india undermining of india colonizing of india blackmailing creating civil wars that india has not understood I mean, and the Indian elite is so amenable to being bribed. China has been taking journalists, teams and teams of journalists. And mind you, they apparently tell them that if they are married, please come alone. They don't allow wives to accompany them. And almost each one of them, nearly 2,000 journalists apparently have been compromised in this manner because once they go there, then they are offered whining, dining, and womanizing. And then all those, and that is not even artificial intelligence, that's just plain human intelligence and little hidden cameras in their bedrooms, in their hotel rooms. And so you have so many of them who are willing to tune into whatever song China wants them to sing or XYZ wants them to sing. So already we were so vulnerable. What you're saying, makes me shiver with fright. I don't know. Um, I mean, now this book of yours, will it help the enemies of India by further exposing our vulnerabilities or are they already aware of it? Uh, you are just trying to ring the alarm bell for the rulers here. Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you something. I spent five years going around privately. That's why you didn't hear from me 
I, I gave hints of what I'm writing, but I didn't disclose because I wanted that somebody somewhere will take me seriously and say, okay, now tell us more. I don't want any money. I don't want any post. Don't care damn about all that because that's all nonsense. I mean, that's not merit oriented anyway. So I don't want to be part of that kind of game that it's not like I'm square in a, in a search and hunting for some kind of uh, some a link and association. I just wanted to share knowledge with people who take it seriously and do something about it. And I would be shunted from this to that, go meet there, talk to this fellow, I pick up the phone, set up an appointment, go, he'll, he'll meet you. And I was always received with great hospitality, nice khana they would give, some minister would invite me to his house, invite a lot of people. It's like Shoshagiri and good tamasha. And if I wanted that, it was, I would say, oh, gee, I'm doing very well. But my goal is how to get this into their heads and get actually actionable decision making, policy making. I was not successful. So then I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go public and I'm going to write this to the public and let the chips fall where they may. And if they don't like it, they don't like it because I've given them a chance to deal with me, uh, you know, privately, but they, they're not interested. So about a year and a half ago, I think it was uh, early 2019. I was sitting in, uh, I've had this conversation with se several people. One, one was a breakfast meeting in Bangalore in my hotel. And this young lady comes and she's working with me very closely. She's a very brilliant person, very much on my side. So I was giving her this, uh, you know, in, insight, spent two hours giving her my thesis. And so she's, she's somebody who says, you know, you should not publish this. I said, why? You will give ideas to our enemies. She said that to me. And I said, you know, you are underestimating our enemies. They already know these yeah. things. It's our, our own leaders who don't know these things. So enemies already know these things. Then I went and gave, uh, there's a Dehradun festival called Valley of Words, which uh, uh, is run by some Masuri, the IS Academy people in Masuri. They run this literary festival. So in 2019, I was the keynote speaker. And would you believe my whole talk, I have a video, I'm now going to put it out there. My whole talk was on artificial intelligence and the crash of civilization and the threat to population, the threat to human rights in India, the threat to this whole BI 2.0, this whole use of social justice as a new weapon, weapon with, with the expanded with the use of AI. I talked about all this and I talked about the core, the the core ideas that you and I have been talking about. Luckily, the only video was our team. Our team had two, three cameras and we were doing the videos. The Q&A people were so stirred up. So one guy took me to lunch afterwards and said, I want to beg you, do not talk about this because, you know, we are all scared now. So I said, but we are all, we are all scared now. So I said, okay, you are scared of the prognosis, but what are you going to do about it? So I again went into this business that maybe I'll delay my thing. So it only, uh, I would have gotten this book out a year ago, uh, but then the pandemic came. Then I decided, you know what, I'm going to get it out. So I have played with this idea that, uh, am, I, am I giving ideas, scenarios? And in a sense, I, yes, I am. People can pick up these scenarios. But I, don't, I think these are very smart people already who are into all these AI, AI and national security and geopolitics. They're very smart people. I talked to uh, American people who are into this field and some Europeans, and I'm going to I see if they'll come out in public and 
do videos with me in public because so far it's private conversations they know these scenarios they all feel that india is sitting on a it's a it's a huge uh, uh, potential that could uh, fall apart indians need to understand it now now it's enough of pandering to the government and pampering to the government and sucking up to the government the common person in india needs to know they need to know that the 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 leadership is not just about winning elections and knocking out that you know regional power no we're still not done with literacy and numeracy we are actually de-skilling india that that process which started during colonial rule of de-skilling india is still continuing at a ferocious yeah. pace now what you're saying is that a country which failed to even provide decent literacy numeracy skills is now going to face with this new monster yes. um and the others have raised ahead we don't even know how to spell it uh leave alone understand its intricacies and its potential of disrupting india so rajiv i for the moment we uh conclude here i'll start the next episode with you on it because there's still a few more questions i'd like to ask you uh the question i'm going to start with is what is it that triggered your interest in this topic because you were doing a whole lot of other things um and suddenly this is indeed a new field you've opened many new doors so uh that's the question i'd like to start with in the next i will episode. love it and uh, your your interviewing style is always very nice very thought provoking i also uh, stimulates ideas and i think we have good chemistry so i'm looking forward to this very much and thank you one more time for this honor to be able to talk to you in this easy relaxed manner but it's the manner may be relaxed but the information you're sharing is truly disturbing and i hope people start taking notice thank you rajiv thank you very much